Hello and welcome to Come Back When the Leaves Are Green. This is the podcast which is part of Orthopaedic Research UK's brand new one-day intensive course in paediatric orthopaedics, part of the FRCS Orth exam. I'm Gavin Spence joining you from Dubai. Uh, in London, we have two people joining us. Uh, first of all, my friend and colleague, Michalis Kognakis. Michalis, we're going to talk about upper limb stuff today. Is, is that something that you considered as a career? Uh, hello, Gavin. It's certainly not something that uh, I'm familiar with. Uh, probably in my training. So um, I'm very much looking forward to um, hearing uh, a lot of interesting stuff about congenital hand deformities by a highly specialist colleague that uh, I'm very fortunate to work in the same trust, uh, Lorenzo Garagnani. Hi, Lorenzo. Hi, both. Thanks so much for inviting me tonight. It's such a pleasure to be here. Thank you. Pleasure to have you, Lorenzo. You're at Geisen St. Thomas's. I think you were at the Rizzoli Institute in Bologna, were you not, before you came to London? Uh, I did. I did my actual orthopedic training at Rizzoli Institute. Uh, over there, I did my pediatric orthopedic training, in fact. And then I completed my training with hand surgery fellowships in the UK, worked as a consultant in the UK, and uh, worked in, uh, before moving to Geisen St. Thomas's, I was working at Modena University Hospital. Not far from Bologna, not far from Rizzoli. Wow! So, so we have um, we have a, a, a touch of Italian class today. I think the listeners should also know that not only not only are you connected to that beautiful country, but you're also a piano player and a jazz fan, and that puts you way, way, way up on like top of the list, and on in my estimation. So it's uh, it's great to have you on the podcast today. <laughs> Thanks so much, Gavin. Okay, so. Um, we wanted to pick your brains, Lorenzo, about congenital hand conditions. This is something that is obviously a highly specialist area of practice in which you are an expert, but the FRCS Orth exam is an exam of breadth of knowledge rather than depth of knowledge. So can, I was wondering if you can give us some idea of what sort of topics you think people ought to concentrate on, how much detail they would need to know, and, and uh, you know a general approach to these problems. Because if you're faced with a case like that, as a clinical case in the exam, I, I can imagine it would cause people a lot of anxiety. So we need some some basic, you know, calm you down rules for for how to approach some of these cases. So uh, yeah, can you give us some of your your tips on that? Absolutely. Uh, so the first tip I can I can give everyone is when you are uh, asked the question about uh, a pediatric congenital anomaly case of the hand or upper limb. Take your time to think about it. So don't start talking until you have uh, made a mental plan about what you're going to say, because it's very easy to get it wrong and to jump on too soon to conclusions and get it completely mistaken. So uh, the, the best thing to do is to look at what you are presented with or the information you are given uh, by the examiner if they show you a picture of a case or an X-ray or give you clinical information Take your time to uh, assess it and uh, and uh, start with uh, clinical examination of the patient as usual, as you would usually do. Remember, we're talking about children. So when you mention what you would do in terms of clinical examination, uh, you need to also bear in mind that uh, some tests are not possible in children because simply they wouldn't uh, be compliant with the tests. Uh, so it's mostly based on what you see, what you describe. And this is the first step. Look at what you are given and describe what you see without, again, making a diagnosis. Uh, once you have described that, and again, if it's an X-ray, look at the physis, look at the shape of the physis, look at the ossification centers. Are they present or not? Which ones are present? So that also uh, leads to uh, um, an assessment of the age 
of the of the uh, patient you have been presented with. For instance, if you see uh, that the radius ossification center is present and the ulna is not present, then you are within the range of one to five years of age because the ulna ossification center would appear at year five. Uh, usually, or if you see that the scaphoid of physician center is absent, then you are looking at X-rays of a, of a young child below four. Uh, so uh, because the scaphoid one appears at around four years of age, so you need to be aware of this. And once you have that in mind, you can start, of course, feeling more confident about the case, even though you may not know about the diagnosis as yet. And then you start assessing the findings, the anomalous findings. So if you see a deviation of a finger or a bowing of a bone in the in the forearm, like the radius, or an anomalous shaped carpal bone, or any other accessory fingers or missing fingers or thumbs, then you can start establishing a differential diagnosis. And once you've done that, you think about the potential genetic assessment syndromes and isolated uh, anomalies that you know about. And you need to know just a few of them. You don't need to know the broad spectrum of congenital differences of the upper limb because that's massive and is, I dare anyone to know all about everything. And certainly that's not the scope of the FRCS source exam. Uh, the, the, the assessment is based on what you can describe, what you can recognize safely, and also your understanding of the condition. So if you are looking at something that could be part of a syndrome, you need to know what a syndrome is. What is a syndrome? Is it something that uh, you know about? Have you heard of it before? And the syndrome is basically a collection of different uh, symptoms and signs uh, in the same individual, but that doesn't necessarily mean that there is a genetic reason for it. A lot of syndromes are non-genetic. And then if you think there are features that may occur later in life associated with this potential uh, syndrome, then you need to talk about them because some of the anomalies we see, like for instance, a radial club end may be part of a more complex spectrum of anomalies and they can also include something that occurs later in life like the TAR syndrome or like Fanconi anemia, so uh, life-threatening conditions. So you need to be aware uh, of that as well. I will interrupt you just to say how important, I mean, I, I, I don't deal with upper limb, but I remember my fellowship, the first time I saw a radial club hunt child, and he had Fanconi's anemia, and he had the TAR syndrome, and I think he had um, bone marrow transplantation for the Fanconi's anemia. I never forgot that, okay? So I just wanted to say how important it is if any of the, uh, the candidates, the delegates that are listening to this podcast they have the opportunity to go to one of the clinics like yours or any, any other hand surgeon who uh, they are in their own trust, please do. Because so much easier to remember. Once you see a red club hand, you never forget. And then you go back and you read and you remember how it looks like, You especially if you see an operation, of course, if you discuss the operation, then it's so much easier to understand what the centralization or regularization or whatever, you know, the, the management is going to be or, you know, you're going to use a frame or a serial casting or whatever. It makes so much more sense. I never forgot that Falconian name and I will never forget that because I've seen it in practice. Well, I would just say, uh, thanks, Mikhail, because what you said is extremely important. It's, uh, yes, once you see one of these cases and you're aware of the potential implications in future life or risk, uh, of life, uh, of death associated with some disorders, and I'm not saying with all disorders, only a few of them have these major risks. Most of them are 
pretty benign. Uh, however, once you see these once, you remember it for forever. So it's very important to attend clinics, and I would welcome anyone, really. If anyone wants to, to visit us, um, there will be uh, doors open for everyone. Yes, radial club band is a topic that in FRCS ORTH is quite relevant because you may be shown an X-ray of a forearm and the hand with a minor radial deviation. We call it actually radial dysplasia or radial deficiency in terms of uh, lack of radial length of the radius. It can be slightly shorter than the ulna, so we would call that normally in an adult uh, positive ulnar variance. However, in a child, it's a bit different. You may have implications in terms of, as I said, syndromes or radial claband presence, and uh, you need to be able, again, to make this diagnosis, this differential diagnosis. You need to look also at the, the structures distal to the radius because um, even with a short radius which is maybe present you may have an hypoplastic thumb and there are also different types of hypoplastic thumb there is the classification that you can look up is pretty straightforward there are uh, a few of course features that you need to bear in mind it ranges from a small thumb but stable to an unstable thumb or to a, a floating thumb or an absent thumb. And some children clearly have only four fingers and no thumb, and that's pretty obvious. But other children have a very subtle anomaly and just a hypoplastic thinner musculature, and that may be confused with some other disorders. So you need to be aware of, of these. And uh, again, the radius may be absent. In that case, if you're shown that case, it's very obvious that you are seeing a, a radial dysplasia. And there are also other anomalies in the upper arm that, that can be present in uh, more uh, extreme patterns of, uh, of uh, disease. However, radial claband is something that you start treating soon after birth. Initially, you correct it with splinting. And once the child is old enough to undergo surgery, if surgery is required, if splinting has not uh, improved the ulnar deviation of the wrist and uh, or just partially, then, of course, you consider surgical treatment. And you need to be aware of the surgical steps. And the steps sometimes are uh, subdivided in multiple procedures. You can do soft tissue release and centralization or radialization in, uh, in, uh, in one procedure, or you can uh, use an external fixator to achieve a progressive straightening of the wrist. So there are different techniques you can use. And that also depends on how supple is the wrist. So you need to assess the patient clinically, assess the age of the patient, assess the type of deformity. So you, you need to mention that you know about the possible range of procedures. And with the exam, you need to make clear that you know what you're talking about. So you, you know that there is a deviation, there is usually a fibrous tether on the radial side of the wrist that you need to be aware of. You may have to release surgically. You need to know that the skin may be in excess on the ulnar side of the wrist and limited on the radial side, so you may have to transfer some skin. And there are speci specific flaps, like the bilobed flap, that allow you to transfer the skin from the ulnar side towards the radial side. You need to know that you can either transfer the carpus onto the ulna head, uh, um, which is the radialization, and then stabilize it with the pin that you leave in place for a long period of time, as long as possible, in fact, or you can fuse the carpus to the ulna head, and in that case, it's a centralization. However, uh, again, it's, again, it's a matter sometimes of how supple is the wrist when you correct it, that makes you 
leads you to the decision whether to perform one or the other. Certainly, if you do not fuse the carpus to the ulnar head, you would preserve range of motion, inflection, and extension. And this is something that you need also to mention uh, with the examiner. In fact, that's my favorite way of treating radial club ends, to try and preserve as much as I can in terms of motion. Another thing you need to mention every time you assess a child with any congenital upper limb deformity is that you would assess both upper limbs, even the non-affected one, if one of them looks normally formed, because they may have subtle changes that you're not aware of. So you need to perform comparative x-rays, also to assess the difference in length of the bones during growth, uh, or the difference in size, and you need to perform a clinical assessment of both upper limbs. And this applies to any case you see. You always compare and again, you need to be aware of absent limbs or shorter limbs, like symbrachidactyly. These names you need to be familiar with. So short and joined together fingers. And there are different subtypes of symbrachidactyly, from short fingers to missing fingers. You also have transverse growth arrest of the upper limb. So uh, higher up arrests uh, proximal to the hand. So you can stop growing at the wrist level, can stop growing at the forearm level, you can still have an elbow, or you can have no elbow or no upper limb at all. So there are different patterns of transverse arrest you need to be aware of. You need to be aware of the fact that because most of us would, without knowing, would tend to say, well, if there is a missing limb, what I do is to apply a prosthesis, either a functional or a cosmetic prosthesis. You don't really do that in a child. That needs to be aware of because uh, uh, First of all, children work better when they're left free to move. So you don't want to put anything on the child's body or a limb that would actually interfere and impair with the way they play or interact uh, with the others. Uh, and also, they continue to grow. So uh, it's not practical to apply any prosthesis, neither functional nor cosmetic, on a child's limb, even if the limb is missing, because you would have to replace it constantly, and that's completely impractical. And also when they ask you about clinical examination, if you mention tests, yes, you're free to mention them. If you are able to perform them, older children may allow you to, but uh, younger ones don't. So you need to mention the fact that in clinic, you would give them a tool, like a pen, to draw with or a little toy, something that allows you to observe them as you are performing your clinical examination because what you do with, with children with uh, congenital upper limb differences is not to operate on everyone at all costs, but it's only to operate on those children who have an actual functional need uh, based on the functional requirements. So uh, a lot of these children do not need surgery, in fact, or need occupational therapy, and you need to be aware of this option as well. Uh, occupational therapy with specifically designed tools that they can use to enhance their function, hand therapy with splinting for correction of angular deformities over time during growth, and uh, bearing in mind that you can always have uh, a plan A and the plan B. Plan A could be non-operative, plan B could be surgical if required. And uh, another thing to bear in mind is that functional needs change over time in children. So when they're little, they only need to play and to draw. And, and to perform simple tasks. So they do not have any issues, in fact, even with the missing limb. They're able to cope with everything. Over time, as they grow into adults, they will need their uh, limbs to perform different tasks. And, uh, and you may be surprised. And sometimes things that seemed completely okay and the functional limb that uh, was okay up to the teenage years, then is no longer okay. And it's not just a cosmetic issue. It's actually a functional issue. Uh, I remember a child I saw a while ago as a teenager and uh, he had proximal radioulnar synostosis, which is another disorder you need to be aware of. Lorenzo, <laughs> I was just about yeah. to ask you about synostosis because your example just brought me this 
the functional problem with synostosis where everybody would yeah. like to operate. And this is exactly what the case where you need to say how functional, sometimes cultural differences make a big of a difference, you know, and yes. what is this exactly your aim and what is it you can achieve when you cough synostosis? So please tell us about radiolmus synostosis. Yeah, that's another another interesting topic because uh, uh, you see children who have only one side affected or others have both sides. And if it's bilateral, then there is an indication for surgical treatment at some stage. It doesn't mean that you have to jump on it and operate very soon. You can see how they uh, cope with it and they usually do very well because they compensate with the elbow and the shoulder motion and also with the wrist uh, motion. They develop uh, an ability to supinate the wrist rather than the forearm over time. And uh, I've seen adults who have never been treated and they've actually been living their lives without any real issues. Of course, they found it difficult to carry out certain activities compared with other ones. Uh, however, they've been managing uh, throughout their lives. But if you want to discuss this, or if you're asked to discuss this by the examiner, remember, um, if it's bilateral, there is an indication for treating at least one side uh, in a way that one side improves the supination and one side could remain in pronation because that's the commonest, the pronation one or neutral one is the commonest pattern of synostosis. And in that case, you would have one end able to help the other hand holding objects uh, and it wouldn't be a struggle with the shoulders and the elbows for compensation. Would, you say, would you say pronation? I mean, I don't know, but yeah. pronation is more important in 2022 because of keyboard ah, yeah. and everything else rather than supination while in some countries supination is very important i don't know you know eating a bowl of rice even for hygiene reasons you know for specific cultures when uh, they, they need to is that things that you consider in your practice when you take uh, those decisions Rooting. Absolutely. You need to consider, again, as you mentioned, Michael, it's also earlier on the culture is very important, cultural differences and needs to feed yourself with specific tools, for instance, and make it more difficult when your hand is in a certain position. Playing instruments, children will want sometimes to play instruments and uh, uh, some instruments like the piano would be absolutely fine if you play it with uh, pronated forearms, but other instruments do not, don't allow it. So again, it's a matter of dealing with the requirements of the child and you may need to operate on a child at a later age because uh, some functional needs have not emerged until then. Another thing uh, I wanted, is that this is exactly what I was um, saying earlier on about the patient I saw uh, a few years ago. I remember this case because he had been coping extremely well with pronated forearms. He had uh, refused surgery as a child. His parents refused surgery as a child. He, he didn't have anything done. And then he came to see me when he was a teenager and uh, he actually wanted surgery at that point for a reason because he had decided he wanted to be a waiter. And uh, in order to wait properly, he needed to have some supination. So it's something that his parents were not expecting. Nobody was probably expecting, but here we are. So you need to consider when you when you discuss a child's treatment with the examiner, that you need to tell the examiner, to, to make the examiner um, confident that you know about this. You know that things may change in time and you know how to address the change. So it's not just a static assessment of the child that you are performing. You mentioned about function. Assessing that in a young child particularly can be difficult. Are there any buzzwords, uh, terms that people could use to indicate to the examiner that that they are uh, looking at a child's function? I'm thinking of things like bimanual use of the hands, you know, prehensile grip, key grip, power yes. grips. Do you talk about those kind of things? What, what sort of useful terms can, can we yeah. share with people to, to use in front of the examiner? 
I mean, the terms you, you, you mentioned are completely correct, is exactly what you need to mention. So uh, you need to mention the pinch, you need to mention the opposition of the thumb. Some children, for instance, other conditions have a lack of opposition for, um, of course, hypoplastic thinner musculature. So in those cases, you need to, to assess the tip-to-tip pinch. The thumb in opposition should flex, adduct, and pronate. So it's a combined motion, and this allows the thumb pulp to face the pulp of the fingers. If that doesn't occur, there is a lack of opposition. So again, look at the opposition of the thumb, look at the pinch grip, look at the power grip. So when they hold a larger object, is they're able to hold it in their hands without dropping it. And of course, in some cases, you need to, to check whether a grip is available uh, altogether, because some, some children may not be able to have a grip at all. And when you see, for instance, children with a missing thumb, like I was mentioning earlier on, they would use the side-to-side grip uh, between the index and the middle finger to hold objects in their hand. And they become quite good at that. Some of them also use the ring and little fingers because of the missing thumb. So that's another thing you need to consider, age and timing of treatment. Because if you wait too long with a child who's getting used to use ring and little fingers or index and middle fingers together to compensate with, for a missing thumb, then uh, you have probably missed the boat a bit. Because when you perform a polycization or a reconstruction of the thumb by other means, but polycization is the best one, you transfer the index finger into the thumb position. It's quite a complex procedure. I'm not describing it now. However, uh, I would invite everyone to read this up because it is very important to know when you mention radial club ends and thumb hypoplasia. When you do polycization, the child may still continue to use the ring and little fingers to hold objects and not the new thumb. So you need to be aware that there is also a time for everything. The best time for functional surgery on these hands is after age one, the first year of life, because of it's safer from an anesthetic point of view. However, you don't want to wait too long after then because uh, then the brain continues to, of course, evolve and uh, and the children start using compensatory maneuvers that would interfere with your treatment. So another important thing about age is when you consider syndactylis. So another term you need to know is syndactyly. Uh, syndactyly is one of the commonest hand uh, differences. In fact, one in 1,000 individuals is affected by some type of syndactyly, even just minor. We call it webbing or uh, incomplete, simple syndactyly when it's just minor and excessive skin length in the web space. However, you have different types. You have simple, complex, and complicated syndactyly. Simple is when the fingers are joined together by just uh, a bridge of skin. Complex is when the bones are also fused together, in particular the distal phalanges. Complicated is when you have patients with very complicated patterns of, of deformity of the hand with bones in different directions or fused together or even missing partially and fused together uh, the remaining ones. And those are m- much more difficult to deal with. And then you have complete and incomplete syndactylis. Complete is when the entire ray, the entire finger is attached to the neighboring one. Incomplete is when only part of it, the proximal portion is attached. So you need to be aware of this. You need to be aware of the age for treatment. Syndactylis is never an emergency if it's simple, uh, complete or incomplete. When it's uh, uh, complex, which means with the bony attachment, you need probably to act a bit sooner because if there is a length discrepancy between the fingers, let's say the index and the middle fingers are joined at the distal phalanx level, you don't want to wait too long because uh, before separating them because the middle finger would start being deformed because it's not 
able to grow in length. So it will develop a lateral or, 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 um, or a palmar angular deformity. So you need to remember the name of the angular deformities of the fingers. So clinodactyly and camptodactyly. Camptodactyly is the flexed finger. Clinodactyly is the finger bent sideways. Again, those are common hand anomalies. Uh, the clinodactyly, so the finger uh, bent sideways, is usually affecting the little fingers, not always, but usually. And remember that sometimes you will find a delta phalanx, another word you need to remember for congenital. A delta phalanx is a delta-shaped phalanx with a, a C-shaped bracket, physis, that grows anomalously laterally rather than in length. And these creates not only a bony deformity, but also a visible deformity of the finger that grows uh, inwards, so um, radial words usually. Uh, but it can be any direction, radial or uh, no. We're moving into the last few minutes of, of our time here. So actually that leads very nicely into the, the last question I wanted to ask you, which was about classifications, which I understand from my plastic surgery colleagues change. What classifications should people know to describe to the examiner different congenital hand, hand anomalies today, would you say? First of all, you need to know about the OMT classification, OMT. It's uh, the classification that comprises all congenital hand differences. So they're all classified within that one. Then there are subclassifications. So there are classifications specific for each type of congenital difference. And uh, again, uh, you need to read all of them up because because they have different grades, and based on the grade, you have differences in treatment. Therefore, it's very important to read the OMT one. You don't need to remember it, but you need to be able to mention it. And once you have well care in mind the subgroups of uh, disorders, then you can have a look into the commonest ones. Like, not commonest ones, I would say, but commonly asked about ones, like Madelung deformity, like radial craband, like syndactyly, as I just mentioned, like thumb hypoplasia, and then you have also polydactyly when you have more fingers and campto and clinodactyly that I previously mentioned. So, yes, you need to, mm -hmm. to look into so this. So things like failure of formation, failure of differentiation, are these? Yeah, they, they were the older classifications that one, Gavin. It was the IFSSH classification, which was um, used until recently, a few years ago, but this has uh, been replaced with the OMT, which is far more complex, but is the... Is the the latest classification, so worldwide recognized by the International Federation of Societies for, uh, for Hand Surgery. So, yeah, uh, the OMT is the one you need to mention. It's, it's slightly more intricate, but definitely formation, differentiation, these mega chapters uh, remain extremely relevant because that's what, what happens during the limb um, embryogenesis that causes the anomaly. Another thing I forgot to mention, but probably I should because we, wo uh, we work at Geisel and Thomas's NHS Foundation Trust, is Poland syndrome, because Poland was a physician in our trust a long time ago. Poland syndrome is, uh, is associated with uh, a growth arrest, a transverse growth arrest of the upper limb. It's something to bear in mind because it could be a, a matter of discussion during the exam. 
So you can see a sim brachydactyly, uh, and you need to think that proximal to it, the patient may have other defects, like pectoral muscles, hypoplasia, or absent pectoral muscles, chest wall defects, including absent ribs sometimes that require reconstruction uh, in extreme cases. But you need to be aware of this, and you need to know uh, how to examine these patients. So not only to examine the hand, but to check whether there is any asymmetry in the nipples that would tell you that if there is any, any difference in the size of the pectoral muscle and also to assess the anterior uh, part of the wall of the axilla uh, because that's the pectoralis muscles if they're absent on one side you will not be able to feel them or you will feel the difference in thickness between one side and the other so remember pollen syndrome which uh, we uh, probably are a bit more proud of because <laughs> it was described in our trust in fact king's college uh, anatomy institute at guys campus have the original Poland hand described by him, preserved. So uh, for those who want to visit the museum, <laughs> that's something interesting. Okay, gents, I think time is probably up. It's a, it's a huge topic, this, a fascinating topic, actually. But Lorenzo, we are most grateful to you. Thank you so much for providing us with that information, a walkthrough and some pointers to some of the important points to bring up. Michalis, also to you, as always, thank you so much for your input. And I'd just like to say a big thank you to everybody for listening into this podcast. I hope you found that useful in your revision. Thanks very much for listening. And we look forward to having your company on another podcast in the future. Good night.